here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. So hi everyone, this is Cece and we are doing a special episode today with Catherine Goldman. Catherine Miller Goldman is an intellectual property attorney who focuses her practice on the protection and enforcement of intellectual property rights for businesses and individuals. She has a particular interest in the protection of online content and represents creative professionals, writers, artists, photographers, and businesses with an online presence. Catherine is the editor of the legal blog Creative Law Center. The Creative Law Center gathers practical, easy to understand, and actionable legal advice in one place that allows creative professionals to create with confidence. Welcome, Catherine. Well, thank you, Cece. It's a pleasure to be here. We are so excited to have you because today we're going to discuss 10 topics that creatives should think about when thinking about legal and business matters. 
So before we begin, we did want to say that nothing in this episode is specific legal advice for any individual listener's situation. The information discussed on this episode is no substitute for speaking confidentially with a qualified lawyer about your concerns. What you'll listen to here is intended to help you be more thoughtful about intellectual property and the law when you write your stories, create your art, and build your business. Basically, guys, this is not a session with a lawyer. (laughs) Hope everyone knows that. All right. So, Catherine, welcome again. And just a gentle reminder that our listeners are writers. And I know you represent a whole bunch of other creatives, but let's try to focus on on the writing side of things, if that's all right. I know that's the majority of your clientele too. Is that right? That's correct. I represent mostly writers, but also visual artists as well. That's wonderful. Okay. So before we begin, can you tell our listeners what you do? Just tell us a little bit about yourself and you know, when does someone seek your services? Sure. So as you mentioned in your introduction, I'm an intellectual property attorney. And so that phrase can be very confusing, intellectual property. What is it? Intellectual property is are the rights that you have in the things you create. Okay. So your books, there are copyrights in your books. You could have trademarks in a book series. You could own rights in any cover art that you might create for your book. So intellectual property is copyrights and trademarks, and in some cases, trade secrets for certain businesses. And so I help creatives protect their intellectual property um, so that they can profit from it. People come to me when they are working on a manuscript and they want to clear certain issues. Can they do certain things? Can they use a trademark or a song lyric? Or can they mention a famous person or a place, a location for their story? So they come to me when they need clearance on their manuscript. They also come to me when they have a contract. If an agent wants to represent them, I review agent contracts. I review publishing contracts. I do contracts with audiobook narrators, book cover designers, anything that you can imagine in the publishing industry, um, I can help writers with. Sounds like a lot. And I loved that you said protect to profit right? I think this is going to be music to our listeners' ears. You mentioned copyright and you mentioned trademark. Um, We will get to this in the topics, but before we start with the specific 10 topics, I'm wondering if you could give us an example of something you can copyright and then something you can't copyright. And the same with trademark, maybe. Okay. So the things that you can copyright are things that you have created that are original, creative, and fixed in a tangible form. And when I say fixed in a tangible form, that generally means written down. It's something that you can um, touch or see or hear. That's a tangible form. Now, we do all our work on computers nowadays. And files, doc files and PDFs and JPEGs, those are all considered protectable, tangible forms. So that's what you can protect. Now, what you can't claim copyright for are facts. 
You cannot claim copyright over facts. And so that's why um, anybody can write histories, okay? Because histories are based in fact. That's why anybody can use the facts of a historical event in their historical fiction. So you can't copyright a fact. You also can't copyright things um, that are not creative. They have to have a modicum of creativity. So basic charts aren't going to be subject to copyright protection. Um, What about recipes? If you're a cookbook author and you're um, writing a recipe, can you copyright that? So that's, that's very interesting. And generally, no, you can't copyright a list of ingredients. But what you can copyright is the expression of how to make the recipe, all right? So if you're making pour-over coffee, if you have a a wonderful method for making pour-over coffee and you fill your prose with creative expressions, that's going to be protected. But grind the beans, put the beans in the filter, heat the water and pour it, not going to be protected. Not protected. Anyone can grind the beans. I love it. Um, And our listeners are very creative, so I'm sure they're happy to hear this. Um, So, okay, for someone who has no background in this, what's the difference between copyright and trademark? Like, how can they even tell Okay, so a trademark is used to identify a source of goods or services. All right, so if I say to you, Mickey Mouse, what do you think? Disney, I think the mouse and Disney, yeah. Right, if I say golden arches. McDonald's. If I say (laughs) just do it. Nike. Right. I'm getting all of them right, guys. I'm very smart. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. Um, so, So these are trademarks and trademarks can be word marks or they can be visual marks. I mean, if you see the swoosh, you think Nike. So trademarks identify a source of goods. All right. Copyright is protecting creative expression. So that's the difference. Copyright protects creative expression. Trademark identifies a source of goods and has to attach to something. You can't have a trademark just out in the wild somewhere that doesn't identify the source of the good or service. Copyright, you can have out in the wild. The minute you write a a poem or a story, you have copyright in that poem or story. Can't do much with that copyright until you file a registration with Copyright Office, but you do have copyright immediately. All right. Well, thank you, Catherine, for that great introduction. I love that copyright can exist in the wild. I'm thinking of tigers now. This is how my weird brain works. So, okay, we're going to tackle 10 topics. So I hope everyone has their notebook ready to take lots of notes. Topic number one, and it is by far the most common topic that we get asked about, quoting song lyrics. When can writers do it? Is it expensive? How can they obtain permission? What the heck is the public domain? Tell us all about that, Catherine, please. Quoting song lyrics is not a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. There's an argument that you should be able to quote song lyrics in your fiction, okay? Um, But it's not a good practice to do it. These writers of songs have copyright in their songs. And if you're using their work, they have to be compensated for it. 
Songs are short, mostly, like poems are short. And so when you are taking a lyric from a song, you're generally taking a pretty sizable portion of that creative work, all right? So that's the basis on which um, it's not going to be considered fair use. Is it expensive? Yes, it's extraordinarily expensive to license the rights to songs. And so unless you are an established writer with steady revenue flows from your work, it's not necessarily where you want to invest your money. Um, I don't know if a publisher is going to be interested in investing. In some cases, they are. So song lyrics generally are a problem, and I don't recommend using song lyrics in your fiction. All right. I think that's good advice. Um, what about song titles and artists' names? Could a character be hanging out in a house and on Martha's Vineyard and thinking to themselves, I love the, this so-and-so song by Madonna? Are they allowed to think that? Yes, they are. You can use song titles in your fiction or your memoir or, you know, your nonfiction. You can use the name of the artists in your work. So those are fair games. So if you have a character in the house on Martha's Vineyard and they have a song running through their head, you can say, right, I'm thinking about this song and I'm dancing through the kitchen thinking about this song. Fair game. And the reader, if this is a popular song, will think of the lyrics, right? So that's a way to evoke that feeling, the commonality that you share, the popular song lyrics, without having to go through a lot of trouble to get permission and it gets super expensive. And it's also a really nice way to reference the artist, right? That's still honoring their work and not infringing in any rules. So that's great. That's correct. You're not infringing. And you know what people do actually when they, if they don't know the song, is they go right to YouTube. I love that. I hadn't thought about that. Okay, this is great. Okay, so topic number two, again, a very popular topic, memoirs. Like, let's talk memoirs. Some of the questions we get are, can I use like real names in memoirs, like of other people, not their own? Like, do you have to get permission? Can I get sued? Are there precautions I'm expected to take? And you know, in a memoir, you remember things, right? Like I remember a fight with, I don't know, my my husband. Like if I write about it and he remembers that differently, do I need to take any precautions? Like maybe add a note saying, hey, this is just my memories, not really like a, like a transcript. Let's talk memoirs is what I'm saying. I work with a lot of writers who write memoirs. In fact, I offered a workshop on memoir and how to manage risk when writing a memoir. And that workshop is available on the creativelawcenter.com. So you can go and check it out. Let's talk about the specifics. It's all about individual writer and the writer's risk tolerance, okay? And you can absolutely put a disclaimer at the beginning of your story that says, these are my memories. And other people may remember these events differently than I do. So that's one thing that you can say. You can also say, in some cases, memoirs take place over the course of many years, right? A coming-of-age memoir, reflecting back as an adult, that kind of thing. And so you can say in a disclaimer, these events happened 
but I have compressed them to fit the narrative, okay? So you can explain in a disclaimer upfront how you have changed things, and that can protect you. You can change names of people, but you have to understand that if you're using your real name as the author, and you're changing the name of your stepsister. Your stepsister is going to know that you're talking about her, okay? So changing names in a memoir can only get you so far if you are writing under your real name. Especially um, with Google. Anyone can Google anyone. That is correct. They're going to be finding who you are and who your family is. Listen, my sister and I read Educated by Tara Westover. What my sister did, because she's such a curious person, is she started Googling Tara's family and she changed her brother's name in the memoir. But I'm sure that Anna, Anna, that's my sister, found out his real name in what, two seconds? Because it's it's out there, right? You can mm-hmm. you can figure this stuff out. That's a great book, by the way. Isaac. Great book. Yeah. Our listeners have heard me rave about it for some time now. Yeah. So when you're writing about a memoir, you're usually writing about something dramatic or painful or worthy of being shared, right? The perfect life is not going to make a great memoir. And so if you're writing about something that happened to you and somebody perpetrated some evil on you and you change their name, you are reducing the risk that they're going to sue you because they're not going to want to, because when you file a lawsuit, it's a public document, and you're not going to want to advertise to the world that I am the person that the author wrote about. I am the evil deed doer. And besides, it's not true. And I'm suing her for defamation. Okay. So when you change the name, you are reducing the risk. That's one way to handle it. I have had writers who have written under their own name and, but changed the name of every single person in the story. Every single person. They've changed the location. They've changed the high school they went to. They've changed absolutely everything. But it's essentially the same story because the drama is still there. What happened to them is still there. And then I have had one author who wrote her entire memoir. She changed all the names. And then she decided, no, I'm naming names. I'm telling the truth. You know, it it depends on who you are and what your story is. And in, in the workshop that we had, I had invited two memoirists to come and talk about the different decisions they made and why and how that impacted their risk. Excellent point. And I just want to um, highlight that for our listeners. Happy lives are not interesting stories. I am very happy for all of you who had very lovely childhoods and lovely adult lives. But once upon a time, there lived a girl who was happy and she continued to be happy is not a compelling narrative. And so, (laughs) yes, of course, memoirs need conflict. And when there's conflict, there could be potential for more. But that sounds like great advice. Topic number three. Uh, Still kind of adjacent to this one, but what about professionals whose job it is, in part at least, to protect confidentiality? For example, can a therapist write about her patients in a nonfiction, whether it's memoir or whether it's a nonfiction title on perhaps um, psychological insights? What about a lawyer? What about a doctor? Can they create characters that mixes up more than one character, like a composite character? You know, do they have to let people know that they did that? Like, is it fair game to do that? And if so, should they include a little author's note? 
I don't believe that um, professionals who have obligations of confidentiality should be writing about their clients. Now, when you're talking about uh, a clinician who has made a 40-year study of certain conditions, you can write about the conditions and you can write about anonymous people who have had these conditions and what their outcomes were, what their treatments were. You can um, talk about them as a group. I can talk to you about the clients that I've represented and securing the rights for lyrics for use in their books. You know, I can talk to you in those terms, but I can't tell you, you know, what the negotiations were and what we went through and what was paid and what was given up and what, you know, what the changes were. I can't talk about that level of detail, but based on my experience, I can talk to you about how a writer can do such a thing, how a writer can use song lyrics or use a location or use a real life event without talking about the specifics of the client. So composite characters are interesting and definitely a viable option in certain circumstances. You have to be careful when you're writing a composite character and you have an obligation of confidentiality that a character, one of your clients isn't going to recognize themselves in that character. That's the risk there. So I would I would be very careful before doing that. In those situations, if they seek permission from those clients beforehand, would you feel that that is a, a good thing to do? And would they be feel safe? Would they be right in feeling safe if they did that? Uh, yeah, if you get permission from someone, then yes, um, you can freely include that character in your work. What I, I don't like to see, and again, it depends on your relationship with the person you're writing about, okay? But what I don't like to see is I don't like to see writers ask permission and then agree to submit the manuscript or portions of it for review. You don't want to give other individuals editorial control over your work. So you can get permission, but don't go too far in that direction. And then remember, if you don't get permission, you know, you're going to be in tough shape in terms of using that person. So if you don't get permission, you can't use the person. The risk goes up. Excellent point. It's all it's all about risk tolerance, right? And if you ask and you hear a no, and I loved your point about editorial um, control. Yeah, you are the author, right? Like you are the you are the god of this world. You are creating. Um, yeah, I mean, it's between you know the editorial input should come from your editor and your publisher and you, and not from somebody that has given you permission to write about. So, okay, topic number four. Using pen names, we get asked about this all the time. Like, what are some of the benefits? Um, does it make ever make any sense to use a pen name? Do I, you know, am I more protected if I'm using a pen name? And if I want to, like, what are the steps that I have to take to protect ownership of my work? Um, there, I have a specific blog post on creativelawcenter.com on using pseudonyms. Um, now, why would you use a pen name? Well, there are a number of reasons. A major reason is you want to protect your privacy, all right? So let's say you're a mom of a couple of school-age kids and you want to write in the erotica genre, all right? And you're going to use your own name and it's going to get out there. And before you know it, the PTA is saying, don't let your kids go play at their house. 
Or maybe they're saying you should check out the steamy author. Yeah. 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 But you don't want people to know about it, right? Like that's your right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Privacy. Privacy is um, a huge reason uh, to use a pen name. Another reason to use a pen name is to try out a different genre um, without confusing your audience. You can still protect your work with a pen name. Um, again, the, the post on the Creative Law Center goes step by step through how to file a copyright application to completely protect your privacy when using a pen name. And then the question becomes, well, if there's ever an issue and I need to enforce against somebody who's infringing my work, you know, how do I do that? Well, you've got the copyright registration. If you're in possession of the copyright registration, that proves that you are, in fact, the true author of the work. You can also make another filing in the copyright office and reveal yourself as the author if that's something that you want to do. And I talk about it in the post and the benefits of doing that and when you might want to think about doing it. All right, all you erotica authors out there, I'm just saying, I if I were to write erotica, I think I would use a pen name. And then I would probably like very dramatically out myself as that person if my erotica became famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so topic number five, offering teasers for free. So another question we get a lot is something like, like I wrote this book and I want to put the first chapter out there for free, um, but I still want to retain copyright. Is that possible? If so, how? Is this ever a bad idea? Um, like what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of doing that sort of thing from a business and legal perspective? Because from a marketing perspective, I mean, there's a clear advantage of, hey, you give people a teaser, maybe they'll want to read more. I mean, you know, there are teasers I mean, Nora Roberts has the first chapter of her next book at the end of every single book, right? And, you know, let's go. Let's get that next book. So teasers from a marketing perspective make a whole lot of sense. From a copyright protection perspective, just not a problem. You've filed a copyright application to protect the entire manuscript. You can put out the first chapter, the fifth chapter, or the ending if you wanted to. It's still protected. Now, from a business perspective, it depends on whether you're trying to secure an agent and go traditionally published or whether you are going to be self-publishing. And my experience, and Cece, you can speak to this, is that agents don't want that work out there. They want it fresh in their hands and unseen if they are going to sell it. They don't want it out there. They'd like to see the author has a platform and an audience, but if they're repping a work, they don't want other people to have already read it. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. So this is true. I will say that as an agent, it's we typically don't want your work out there. However, we also want you to be um, really popular and to have a following. And so it's a it's one of those things, right? It's a fine, fine line. It's a delicate balance. If if you do think that putting your work out there, at least a part of it, would increase your following, um, it might actually attract an agent's attention. It might end up attracting an agent's attention. Um, that being said, I, you know, I'm I'm very much of the mind of don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, which is why like I love talking to, to people like you, Catherine, because you can show us like all the various reasons why it does make sense and how to do it. Right, right, right. So yeah, I mean, it it's uh, your mileage may differ kind of analysis. And I've seen it work really well. You know what else I've seen? I've seen that um, first chapter go out and I've seen it get panned. And then it's like, it's like crowdsourcing. And then the author can pull it down. 
and can fix the work, right? So there is that kind of initial impression. It can be a good initial impression. It can be a bad initial impression. So it's hard to predict which way that's going to go. Exactly. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you since you touched on it is you mentioned like filing a copyright application. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, we learn that something is copyrighted the minute you you write it. When do you suggest that an author who is seeking traditional publishing, um, if ever, when do you suggest that they file a copyright application or should they just keep it in their computer and send it to an agent? This is kind of a complicated question. Typically, traditionally published authors, the copyright application is taken care of by the publisher. You want to file a copyright application on the best version of your work. The best version of your work when you're working with a traditional publisher comes after a number of editorial revisions. Okay, then the book gets published and then within three months, the copyright application is filed by the publisher on behalf of the author. That's the way it goes. Now, if you're hunting for an agent, you really have to vet who you are working with, because um, if you're working with someone who has a wonderful reputation, then you're not going to have to worry about it. But if you are approached or are querying a brand new agent who has very little track record, before you send the manuscript, you might think long and hard about filing a copyright application on that manuscript because, and I know this is anecdotal, but I have had clients who have had their manuscripts ripped off by fly-by-night agents. That sounds so scary. Oh my gosh, I feel so bad for those clients. And no, but listen, excellent advice to always vet agents, right? Like you want someone, if they're a new agent, that's totally fine as long as they're with a reputable agency and they have great mentorship. New agents could actually be a great source of like someone's building their list. So they're actively looking. Um, On that note, you know, to anyone listening, there is a website that I personally really like called Writers Beware. Um, It's run, I believe, by Victoria Strauss. And she does a great job in my opinion. She's a strong advocate in the writing community of of really letting us know when there are scams out there, whether it's fly-by-night agents or anything else that's sketchy, because you do want to be protected and reputation is very important. Mm -hmm. That's right. And you don't, as an agent or a new press, you do not want to find yourself on Writer Beware. I'll tell you that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So topic number six, am I a person? Am I a business? So essentially what this is, is does it ever make sense to set up an LLC? Like what are some of the advantages and disadvantages for a writer? Like, do they ever have to do that? Yes, they have to do that. (laughs) There are a number of business advantages. Again, um, I have a post on my blog on the creativelawcenter.com and it's called Who Owns My Copyright? Me or My LLC? Or actually it might be my LLC or me. Um, And so it goes through the whole analysis of whether you should hold your copyrights individually or whether you should put them into an LLC. There's also the option of an S corp. Okay. And so the ramifications, the different issues are um, there's a taxation issue, there's protection from liability issue, and then there's an estate planning issue. And so all of those aspects are covered more in depth in that post. But let me just say, once you are married, 
have a family and start amassing assets. And then you have a will, okay? And that's when you start thinking about estate planning. So if you're at that stage, it makes sense to keep your copyrights in an LLC. It makes the estate planning much cleaner. There's a a snippet off of a recent workshop that we did that's in that post that you can listen to about that. Now let's talk about liability protection for a minute, especially when we were talking about, you know, drafting a memoir, writing a memoir, and getting sued by the people who might identify themselves in your memoir who don't like the way you depict them. An LLC is set up to protect you from personal liability. However, it won't protect you from being sued as the author for infringement, defamation, or invasion of privacy. But if they sue you as the author and the copyrights are held by your LLC, they're not going to be able to break through um, that corporate veil to get to your copyrights. And so I go in more in depth on those issues in the blog post, but it's worth thinking about. The one area, the choice between an S-Corp and an LLC is very interesting because a lot of writers were setting up S-Corps. And the reason they were doing that is because there are certain tax advantages, uh, employment tax advantages. However, if you are generating multiple revenue streams from your copyrights and you want to take those copyrights out of the S-Corp, you're going to get hit with a big tax bill. So LLC or sole proprietorship, those are the options. I recommend LLC once you're getting that revenue flowing. So the time to do that would be before they get their first payment. Does that make sense? Because I also don't want, I mean, unless this is what you're actually suggesting, I also don't want all our listeners who are still like working on their first drafts to feel like they have to immediately set up an LLC. No, I think it would be when you get that um, offer from a publisher. When you are starting to um, see revenue coming in. So you're pretty far down the road. You've got the agent, you're going to get a publisher, and then you're going to hire a lawyer who is going to advise you as to whether you should um, set up a business and have your contract with the publisher so that the revenue goes into your business or the revenue comes to you personally. You're going to meet with an accountant. When you get that publishing deal is when you should be thinking about it. Excellent. Um, Thank you, Catherine. And I think that, you know, once our listeners reach the stage where they are getting that offer from the publisher, they're going to be so happy. They're not even going to mind having to have boring meetings with lawyers to... we are we are we are as a profession a little a little boring a little boring <laughs> I have to say like you are not boring but as a profession <laughs> lawyers are a little boring uh, <laughs> okay um so topic number seven topic number seven is all about true crime books because we get a lot of questions mm. about that um can anyone write true crime books like can the author get sued for writing about like someone who's in prison does it matter if they're in prison for life or not um like what is a high profile crime how do you even define that does it ever matter talk to us about true crime writing okay so this is an interesting topic i do have a client that does write true crime and so the thing about true crime is the facts are public record, right? So you can take those facts 
things. And you can write your story and everything that's in the public record and you can do the research, you can write your story. But when you are going beyond the public record and you are starting to interview folks and you're starting to get their stories, the witnesses, the victims, the family of the victims, if you were to go so far as to interview the bad guy himself or herself, as the case may be, then you are in an area where you need to consider um, getting an agreement from them to use what they tell you because they are taking you into confidence and they may have certain expectations about privacy or confidentiality and what you will or will not do with what you learn from them. So when you start doing the interviews, that's when you have to have releases. That's when you have to have life rights agreements up front. Do it up front because if you wait until after you have done all your research and your interviews and you've started writing the manuscript or you're close to publication and you don't have those documents in place, you're going to be hard pressed to secure them because that's when they're going to have leverage and they're going to say, no, you can't use my interviews. I didn't know you were going to write this story or whatever. So you have to get those up front. Okay, so topic number eight. Let's talk about like derivatives, like character and setting. So for example, someone writes a book and there's a minor, minor character in this book. Um, This book does get sold to a publisher and it comes out and it does well or maybe not. And this author wants to use a minor character in that story for a different book that's going to be sold to a different publisher. Is that possible? Like, does the author own, hold those rights? Does it make a difference if it's a main character? Or what about settings, right? Like if you create a world, if you create, I don't know, like Star Wars world or something, um, does it matter? Like, does the format matter? Can they create a podcast, a spinoff, something? Let's talk about that. First of all, let's talk about if you have a publishing agreement with a publisher, there may be a requirement for your second or third book, okay? Especially if you're world building and you are envisioning a series or if this is your second series or or what have you. The publisher is going to want to have the right to publish the second, third, or however many books in that series. So there are different ways of negotiating that. You can either do two or three book contract with that publisher, or you can give them what's called the right of first negotiation for the next book with that publisher. Or if you get another, and let's say they turn down that uh, right of first negotiation, they don't want the second book and you go out and get another publisher for the second book, you might have to give them an opportunity to match that deal. Okay. That's all in the contract. Um, Now, with respect to characters, again, that's going to be in the contract. But as a rule, you're going to have the right to create stories um, with the characters that are in your book with respect to the publisher. Now, let's say your book does really well and it gets optioned. All right. So now you're going to start talking about what rights you're going to give the producer and whether they're going to have the right to use other char- or the characters that are in your story in sequels to their 
production, whatever it is. Um, so you negotiate that. Yes, they can use these characters. No, they can't use these characters. Podcast rights. Um, you reserve those rights from the producer because you want to be able to do a podcast on your story. Audiobook rights and podcast rights. You know, how do they intersect? They're really closely tied. So you want to reserve those rights in an option agreement. So all of this stuff gets down to the contract language, all right, and what you're going to negotiate with the publisher so that you reserve these rights going forward to continue to create in your world, continue to use the characters, either with a publisher or with a producer. All about the contract. I love it. Okay, topic number nine. We're getting close. Using creative work for education purposes. So a few of our listeners, they are also editors or creative writing teachers, right? Like typically if you're a creative person, you wear a lot of creative hats. And um, a question that we got was if someone is teaching a class and it is a for-profit webinar and they're using quotes from a novel or quotes from a memoir, um, do they have to seek permission to use those quotes? Um, if an editor is um, charging for their services and uses a quote to exemplify something to a client, a quote from a different novel, do they have permission to use that quote? Does it matter if it's for-profit or not? Maybe they're offering the webinar for free or the editorial services for free. Talk to us about that, please. First of all, quotes and slogans and short phrases are not subject to copyright protection, okay? So if you're using quotes, you are unlikely to be infringing somebody's copyright. Um, it has to do with um, how much of the work you're taking of theirs. And we talked about back with the songs and poems, they're short. So if you're using a stanza, you're taking a substantial part of that work. But if you're talking about, you know, a, a 60,000 word manuscript and you've taken three sentences, you're not using a substantial part of the work. And you're using it in a way that's not going to be competitive with that work. You're using it as an example of a way to express something. You're using it as a, an example of a way, um, you know, to depict atmosphere or to show foreshadowing, okay? And so that is not going to be competitive with the work. It's not a substantial portion of the work. And so ultimately, it's likely to be fair use. Fair use is a case-by-case -case analysis. Again, I have a number of fair use um, posts on the Creative Law Center. Um, so you can take a look at how that works. And I talk about very specific examples and I analyze them so that you can decide whether what you want to do is going to be fair use. I love it. I predict that our listeners are right now going to your website and checking out all these great posts. Am I correct that they are free resources, Catherine? Lots of free resources on the creativelawcenter.com. I've got a checklist on fair use. I have a checklist on book cover design. I have a ripoff protection report. I have a business startup checklist. And then I have the workshops. Now, the workshops are not free, um, but all those other resources are. So that's great. We have free resources and a few paid ones, um, which is, you know, what most professionals do offer, right? Because you also have to get paid for your work. Um, we're asking all these questions about protection for profit. So it makes total sense. 
Um, Okay, so topic number 10. And I know this is something that you get asked about a lot because it's something we've discussed, you and me. You know, we get questions from our listeners. I got into a bad contract. Um, Can I ever get out of it? I know that one listener of the podcast asked me about the Dave Chappelle example. And I know this is not writing, so we're not going to get into it. Um, But he's- Good example. I looked it up. Right. Like that, like this person who reached out to me, they were like, I just, I, I got into a bad contract. I want to get my rights back. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Can I ever get my rights back? Um, the answer is yes, you can. The law says you can after 35 years. So you have to be very, very careful when you enter a contract. You, the One of the things you want to look at first is the termination provision. How do I get out of it? All right. When you're being presented with a contract, you are in this uh, wonderful period with whoever it is you're working with, with a publisher or with the agent. You're really excited about it. You're really getting along. Everything's wonderful, right? So you need to think about a contract as though it were a prenup, okay? Everybody's madly in love, but I have my stuff and you have your stuff. And if this goes south, How am I going to get out of this relationship with my stuff? And so that's what you want to think about um, before you sign on the dotted line. Take a look at the termination provisions right away. How do I get out? And if I do get out, do I get my rights back? Now, in the Chappelle case, and I'll tell you, Tom Clancy's first book that he wrote, The Hunt for Red October, he assigned the copyright to the publisher. Big mistake. You license rights to publishers, very specific rights, and you reserve rights to yourself. Now, he was able to go back and recover those rights. And I don't know how difficult it was for him, but it was a classic new author mistake assigning the entire copyright, which means that publisher had the right to option for the movies and all of the derivatives, et cetera. And ultimately, he was able to get those rights back. So Dave Chappelle assigned his performance rights to Comedy Central. Now, I don't know what the background was. I don't know if he was uh, an unknown at the time, um, but he was definitely uh, taken advantage of in that contract, looks like to me. Yeah, I looked up the case too, and that's what it definitely seems like. I remember listening um, to him talk about it, and there was language that was just so incredibly broad and definitely felt a little predatory. Again, I don't know the specifics of the case. Yeah, but just because you're taken advantage of and just because the contract is predatory does not mean you can get out of it. At at this point, you're in business, and you're Mm -hmm. expected to act like a business person, and you're supposed to be... Um, looking at it with a critical eye, and you're supposed to have good advice, people who are knowledgeable. I don't know where his agent was at the time, yep. right? I don't know if his agent was his mother. I mean, I have I have no idea, really, but you need a professional who's going to look at it and who's going to say, you know, if you sign this, you're going to lose your rights. And then it's up to you to decide, well, do I want to lose my rights and go with Comedy Central, which is going to be great and it's going to turn me into, you know, super comedian? Or do I want to keep my rights and maybe not get the platform or the exposure? And you have to weigh that as the creative. 
We've covered all 10 topics. Thank you so much. I want to ask you a final question that is coming from our listeners. Um, but before we do, we want to know a little bit about you. So what are you reading? What books do you like? Talk about all the things you love and answer a question that I, because I've begun to form a theory now that we've been chatting for like an hour. Are you a creative person? I think you are. I think you're a creative soul, Catherine. Tell me, am I right? Yes, you are. I knew it. 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 So I am a painter, so a visual artist, and I do that. I have also um, thoughts of a novel that I've been thinking about for a long time, but I haven't written word one, so it's just a thought, you know, and I guess everybody kind of does that, but I do paint. So yeah, I'm, I'm a creative person. I am so happy that I was right because I get a spidey sense about certain people and you just exude creativity. And let's talk about that novel when it's ready. Just saying. <laughs> um, okay. So the final question I have is if you could educate all the writers in the world in one lesson, what lesson would that be? Okay, well, I am going to limit my education to all the writers in the United States. Okay, okay that's fair. That's fair. Let's do that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Different and, jurisdictions after all. <laughs> right. And so what I would say is to be sure to obtain copyright registrations on your work. All right. And your work is not just your novel. It's not just your manuscript. It's also things like blog posts. It could be creative Instagram captions or Facebook posts. File copyright registrations. You never know which part of your work is going to take off and you want to be in a position to protect it. And what has happened this year is the Copyright Claims Board is going to be established this year. And this is like small claims court for creators whose work has been infringed. You don't have to go into federal court anymore. You can now go in front of the Copyright Claims Board. It's going to be all virtual. You can represent yourself. It's going to be streamlined and inexpensive, and you can protect your work. It is a new tool in the creative arsenal, and I want everybody to know about it and take advantage of it. I love that. I did not know about it. I've been out of it for so long. I'm so happy you told me. See, you are you are bringing information for everyone. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much. So, okay. So if anyone wants to find out more about you and or hire your services, where can they find you? The creativelawcenter.com is where you can find out all about me. You can book a consultation on the contact page. You can sign up for my list. You can send me an email. You can find out more about my law practice on my law firm website, which is called charmcitylegal.com. Um, so in either one of those places, you can find me. And you can also look at my art on Instagram at Katherine Goldman. I'm going to follow you on Instagram right now. And just for our listeners, there's no the before Creative Law Center. Um, so it's creativelawcenter.com. Just so you guys go to the right place. Thank you. thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much. That was a pleasure. I enjoyed being here and thank you for inviting me. All right, that's it for today. Thank you for joining us for the special episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Here's the thing.
Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. 
Don't forget there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.